0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: In Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Tells Us About America, Caleb Elfenbein examines Islamophobia in the United States, positing that rather than simply being an outcome of the 9-11 attacks, anti-Muslim activity grows out of a fear of difference that has always characterized US public life. Elfenbein examines the effects of this fear on American Muslims, as well as describing how it works to shape and distort American society. Drawing on over 1,800 news reports documenting anti-Muslim activity, Elfenbein pinpoints trends, draws connections to the broader histories of immigration, identity, belonging, and citizenship in the United States, and examines how Muslim communities have responded. In our conversation, we discuss the Mapping Islamophobia Digital Humanities Project, The Role of Storytelling and Synthesizing a Large Amount of Data, Anti-Muslim Political Rhetoric and Activities, The Effects of Public Hate, Muslim Participation in Public Life, The Role of Legislation, Hate Crimes, Muslim Public Outreach and Engagement, and Muslim Politicians. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Caleb Elfenbein about Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Tells Us About America, published with NYU Press in 2021. Welcome, Caleb. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, th- I, I really appreciate the invitation to be here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm excited to talk to you about your book, although it it's uh, It's at times difficult to read, but also um, I don't know if inspiring is the right right word, but uh, motivates you to uh, to get out there and, and, and help in other ways. So um, it's a it's a it's a great book and uh, it does a lot and we'll certainly not be able to to get through all the ins and outs. But um, before we get into the book, uh, we always start with a little bit about our authors. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background training influences perhaps uh, moments or mentors that have uh, shaped uh, the subjects you explore uh, the ways you uh, do your research
0: anything like that yeah absolutely thank you for that uh, for that question I think the there, there are two things that I would uh, say really deeply influence me Um Professionally, if I think about my um, trajectory as a scholar and teacher, um, the first being uh, my experience at uh, at Harvard Divinity School, um, working on a master's degree, I came to my my interest in religion as an academic subject um, quite late in my undergraduate years at Bassar College. Uh, I was a political science major, and uh, just had a a fantastic experience with, with one faculty member, um, in the political science department, Andrew Davison. Um, and it really opened my eyes to, uh, to relationships between, uh, religion and, and politics. And, uh, when I started looking at graduate programs in political science, I saw that I wasn't actually likely to learn a whole lot about religion. Uh, um, in, a, in a political science program, even if I was interested in questions of religion and politics, right, it, it was much more focused on religion as a variable in people's behavior uh, versus really learning um, in in depth and um, with uh, with a great degree of sensitivity about um, things that are that are deeply important to people. And uh, I just I happened upon um Harvard University's Divinity School I think I'd taken one undergraduate class in religion um, and I was just taken immediately by by the program uh, by the program's emphasis on, um, on On bringing different people together To study and think about religion um, bringing together people who were engaged in the study of religion for very different reasons and I found that environment to be remarkable. Uh, I I really, really enjoyed uh, starting to learn about religion again as an academic subject in that environment. It was really very special. And um, my advisor at Harvard Divinity School, Leila Ahmed, um, um, was actually new to religious studies when I arrived there as well, Uh, a long time head of. Uh, women's Studies program at UMass Amherst. Uh, she arrived at, at Harvard Divinity School at the same time I did. And it was, a, it was such an incredible experience navigating new waters, uh, along with someone like Leila Ahmed, just an amazing person and scholar. Um, and so that was my introduction to religious studies. It was, it was really, really very special. And, um, and she's she's really the the person who helped me um understand um the centrality of thinking about um gender in uh in Islamic studies um and in religious studies in general um and and that that really left a a, a profound mark in my life um in, in a variety of ways um and it deepened my interest in islamic studies um specifically in working with her um, i had always been interested in in comparative work um and uh, very interested in comparative work between the middle east and the united states and religion and public life in those settings uh, and um and, and she really helped me develop that interest in, in sensitive ways um this the second I think moment that that really profoundly um, affected me and and my professional trajectory was the fact that the first week of my PhD program at uh, at the University of California Santa Barbara was the week of September 11th, um, in 2001, and um, it, it was a, a moment. I mean, it was certainly one of those moments, right? You you remember where you were um when when you when you heard the news and um it took me down a particular path in our field um and the the project um that you've so kindly invited me to to talk about today is in some ways a moment emerges out of a moment in my career of something of a, a rebalance um beginning my phd program that week um very much took me down a path of um of middle east studies and um right had always been an interest but really took me down that path um and uh, my dissertation research was uh, about colonial histories in egypt um and and it it really wasn't until I got my bearing as a as a faculty member at Grinnell College, um, some years later, that I um, I remembered the the crucial part of um, of comparison in the field of religious studies, um, but uh, but also in the way that I imagine myself as a scholar, and um, it returned me to to thinking about uh, life in the United States, and religion and politics and religion and public life in the United States. And uh, it was just as I was beginning to um, turn my attention a little bit in that direction, um, that I began noticing really disturbing trends in the United States um, around anti Muslim sentiment and anti Muslim hostility and anti Muslim activity. Um, and, um, so it was a particular moment in my professional life that, uh, coincided with, um, with what was happening around me, um, in, in the United States that, that led to, uh, fear in our hearts as a project.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the, the kind of early, um, development of this project? Um. It, it sounds like, and uh, from, from what I know, uh, knowing you and then reading a little bit in the book, it's, it's not something that just uh, you sat down and said, I'm going to write this book, but it had this kind of longer um, period of gestation. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about where this came from? Where, where, where did it start to emerge as a, as a more book-formed project? Mm, as a book-formed project?
0: <laughs> I, it's, yeah she's the best that, way but. That, 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 that that history yeah it it feels like a long history now when I when I look back at it um, i I think it it really um, emerged as as a project about which i um, i was interested in writing a book um, is what's the um, the initial research or what became the initial research for the book, when that started with um, website mapping Islamophobia, um, I really, I didn't know what to expect. I was new to digital humanities, um, but I, I knew that I was very interested in creating work um, that was accessible to broad audiences um, that could be useful in, um, in classrooms. And um that, that might be useful for policymakers, um, and just people outside the academy. And um, when, when I started getting feedback on that project and saw that um, though there's always room for improvement in projects and making it as accessible as possible for people, um, when I started getting feedback that it actually w- was useful in a variety of ways um, to, um, to students, to faculty at other institutions, um, and to people outside the academy. It really um, inspired me to think about, okay, um, what have I learned from collecting data about anti Muslim hostility, and then as the project developed, um, about the, the incredible um, outreach uh, that Muslim communities um, have engaged in over, you know, the the last um, certainly 20, 20 years in the United States, and um, and so it it really it inspired me to want to share the story around that data um, in a way that um, could reach as broad an audience as possible. So um, I did not set out to write this book, I set out to create a project that was um, that was for undergraduate education, for journalists, for policymakers, and for people outside the Academy. Um, and um, at a certain point, it felt like, okay, I, I think I'm starting to have a sense of, of a story around this data. And, um, and it kind of emerged organically.
1: In that sense. Now, um, for folks who don't know about this mapping Islamophobia project, um, you know you can you can add what you want, but uh, you know it's a it's a digital humanities project where over a number of years you collected data about uh, anti-Muslim activity, and then later on about Muslim public outreach. Um, it's a lot of data. Uh, you know, I've looked at this website a number of times, and there's there's a lot of stuff. And, you know, for people who might not be familiar with this kind of uh, research, uh, one of the things that you, you do with this data, right, you synthesize it all. And, uh, the way it comes through in the book, which is great is, uh, and, and, really powerful is the, the kind of role of storytelling you do throughout the book. Um, you know, cause you're, you're, you're not an ethnographer, you're not an anthropologist, but the, the storytelling, um, you know, of these subjects, uh, is very important for how you, how you make your arguments. Um, so can, can you talk a little bit about how you saw the role of storytelling, um, you know, to kind of, uh, structure this project, um, one one person that you talk about uh, kind of throughout the book, who might might be a good example of thinking about um, this role of narration, is this person, Mahin Hawk. Um, so maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about her and and kind of just more generally how you saw the role of storytelling in your project.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you for that question. Um, the the Digital Humanities Project, Mapping Islamophobia, um, I think if, if people do spend time on the, the website, um, they'll, they'll note that there isn't a lot of explanation of the data, um, present the data visually. Um, we provide right some framing for the data. Um, but there is a there is something of a of a tension in the different goals for that project. As an educator, um, I really thought a lot about wanting to present data in an accessible way, but to not explain the data in ways that would close off kind of interpretive possibilities, right? That people might bring themselves to the data. So it was a fine balance between. Letting the data speak, and providing just enough framing so that people um, didn't feel uh, adrift in the data. Um, so, right as an educator, imagine imagining that project as a resource. Right, those were some of my goals. Um, but as you note, the the book has um, a, a much different feel, um, and um, people's stories are really crucial to. Um, To doing the work of the book. Now, I will say that one link between that um, that core feature of the book and the website um, is that for every for every story that became a data point um, or a row of data in uh, in in data sets, um, we made sure to talk about um, the people who were affected or the people who are doing outreach work. So it does present a lot of data. But um, there are no data points that are um, without a human connection, without a story that emphasizes people. And that to me is what makes a data driven driven project like mapping a slow Islamophobia, what makes it a digital humanities project. And so that, that element of the Mapping Islamophobia Project really animates um, the book. And what became very clear to me as I was writing, um, what became very clear to me is that if I imagine myself standing in front of the classroom, and I did imagine myself standing in front of the classroom, the undergraduate classroom, Uh, The entire time that I was writing the book, really thinking to myself, how would I explain this to my students? Um, Stories, right? People's lives um, are, are, are so profound, right? The everyday experiences that people are having, the capacity to connect to those experiences and to try and imagine oneself having those experiences, we're beginning to think about right, the people around us having those experiences. Um, there's just no more effective way to do that right, than to actually just talk about people and the things that they're experiencing in their lives. And um, the, um, the the young woman you mentioned, Maheen Haq, um, who plays a, a really crucial role um, in the book Um, it was one of, one of the first things that I remember reading as I began collecting data where that human element, right? The experiences of people were going to be so crucial to making the data meaningful. Um, and, uh, I mean, she, she wrote, um, what remains, um, an incredibly beautiful op-ed published in the baltimore sun um in which she was talking about what it felt like to grow up uh muslim in uh in hagerstown maryland and i connected with it in part because uh living in rural iowa myself right she was centering people's experiences in rural america and she was centering her experience as a muslim child and a muslim young woman in rural america um and so i connected to it right um in some ways because of my own life and where my life has taken me um, but that particular piece and the the brief exchange that i had with her immediately after uh, i read the piece um, really um, set i think uh, a tone for the project. Um, that that really made its way into uh, into the book, right? Insofar as I do I do build pretty consistently around uh, around people's stories.
1: The other thing that uh, you do kind of early on in the book to set up is this idea of public hate, uh, which I think is a, a really kind of useful category. Um, and you you of course in the context of your book are talking uh, primarily about anti-Muslim activity. Uh, But certainly with um, things that have been going on around anti-Asian hate, uh, I I think it's another way of kind of conceptualizing this. Um, So can can you tell us how you're kind of defining and using this concept? Uh, How how would you say public hate operates and and what are the effects or the, the social outcomes of this public hate?
0: Yeah, public hate is a concept um, that I hit upon as I was trying to uh, make sense of uh, a shift um, that I think was pretty discernible in 2015. Um, and that was the relative freedom that people seem to feel Feel that they had to say and do really terrible things about and to Muslims in the United States, right in in public. And I was trying to really understand what was making that possible. And um, at, so I started thinking in terms of, of public hate as um, as a way of explaining um, both the effect of political discourse, um, around Muslims in that case, but I think as you point out quite, uh, quite correctly, um, right, applies, uh, I think, uh, equally, uh, strongly to anti-Asian hate right now in, in our moment in the United States. Um, but to, to really think about the effect of, um, political discourse on um, on making it more acceptable to articulate um, hatred right, of particular groups of people in public um, what makes that possible and i started seeing that um, that anti-muslim activity didn't necessarily follow from anything in particular that Muslims were doing, right? Rather, anti-Muslim activity followed from public discourse and particularly, um, by political leaders, but also, uh, members of media with, with large audiences, right? And those two things are so often connected. Um, and I, I started to see that that effect of um, of political discourse as something that was really crucial in um, making it more acceptable for more and more people um, to say and do kind um, of shocking things uh, in in public as uh, relating to Muslims in the United States. Um, And I I was trying to figure out a way to to grapple with that and and explain it. And this concept of of public hate um, seemed to do some of that work. But I also wanted to explore um, how something like public hate wouldn't just lead people to say and do terrible things, but might also lead people to become numb to the fact that other people were doing those things right to um to think well i certainly wouldn't do that but and then fill in the blank there around um, whether muslims really fit in the united states and kind of not being certain about that right so public hate leads to not just an increasing acceptability of public expressions of hate, um, but also a kind of ambivalence that allows for um, anti-Muslim sentiment or anti-Asian sentiment to proliferate. So that's that's right. That's what I was trying to get at with this idea of public hate. What follows from um, from political discourse uh, in the way that we speak and act in public.
1: Now, um, th- there's a lot to the book, of course, and, and these, these stories that you sprinkle without um, give us a lot. And of course, we won't be able to get into all of them. Um, so one, one period that you kind of hone in on as um, really consequential is this, this period you call the rehabilitation of public hate. Um, can you tell us about, um, what are, what are some of the key events during this rehabilitation? Who were the people involved in, in restoring kind of public hate? Um, and, and what, what were their objectives? Why, why were they trying to make anti-Muslim, uh, rhetoric and activity kind of the norm?
0: That's a very good question. I, I do talk about this period um, really starting in uh, around 2010, um, but that really picks up in 2015. But if we look to, um, to 2010, we start to see um, the effects of what I would call Um, an an anti-Muslim social movement, um, that I would date back to September 11th. And, um, when I, when I say a social movement, I do so very purposefully because I want to, I want to really emphasize that, uh, government policy is, um, is part of, of the picture, um, but I I want to I want to point attention to anti-Muslim activists outside of government and the extent to which um, through um, quite patient work over time um, and I I say I say patient I mean I, I feel I feel odd using that term because it's usually a, a term with positive connotation. Um, but in in this uh, in this context I'm really using it um in a way to emphasize um, the the kind of work um, in in which they were engaged, which was very slowly, over time sowing seeds of doubt about whether Muslims could ever really be American, whether Muslims could ever truly fit, in this country. So um, between 2001 and 2010, um, right through the efforts of someone like David Ural Shami, who began to um, articulate fears about Sharia law in the United States. um, Over time, the very slow and careful work of cultivating, for example, legislators at the state level of cultivating um, members of media um, who were um, who were amenable right, to asking questions about cultural fit, asking questions um, about um, whether right, whether Muslims constituted a kind of existential threat to the United States. And that started to, um, to show some, some signs of success, um, around 2010. Um, right, that's, um, the, 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 first effort at banning Sharia in the United States, a constitutional, uh, amendment in Oklahoma, um, that was really uh, an important moment in the history of anti-Muslim sentiment and activity in the United States. Um, if we take a step back and think about that for a moment, right? you are talking about um, a state government banning um, a collected body of uh, law understood in a particular way Right. But more generally, a body of guidance that millions of Muslims around the world for centuries and centuries have drawn upon to make meaning in their lives, to guide themselves to living um, just lives, um, lives that support um, their communities and communities around them, Um, talked about banning that from ever entering into state proceedings. Um, so if you think about the implications of something like that around wills and marriages and the extent to which, um, religious life is interconnected to legal life in the United States in really deep ways, um, wow, that is a really scary moment. Uh, and so that idea of, of the rehabilitation of public hate, right? It's over time. How do you begin to build the conditions in which it becomes acceptable for more and more people um, that um, that state institutions and others might target uh, particular groups of people, in this case, Muslims, right? So the rehabilitation of that idea right, of, of a public articulation of hate toward a particular group of people as being, if not acceptable, kind of understandable. And right it, it, it's, So it's in that context also um, that we can make sense of the controversy, um, for example, around the, the Ground Zero mosque.? Right? That didn't come out of nowhere. That emerged out of activist networks that in some ways, right? We're waiting for just that moment. And right we, we look at that particular project in Southern New York right, as one that um, had emerged out of a real sense of, um, of wanting to heal um, or create the conditions in which communities could heal um, in New York City um, after September 11th. And to take that effort and turn it into, right, the so-called Victory Mosque. Um, and again, these questions about whether um, Muslims were really American. Would real Americans do something like that? Try to open right, a so-called victory mosque? Um, and the very fact of being able to ask those questions in public and to have a lot of people say, oh, yeah, what about that? Right. That was the result of years and years of slow and patient efforts um, to rehabilitate um, public hate against Muslims.
1: Now, um, in the kind of genealogy for our um, kind of more recent uh, iterations of this in, in American public life, and especially in political discourse, um, you, you zoom into uh, in 2015 this this Charlie Hebdo shooting, um, not not as an you know instance in France, but actually and what that event kind of opened up. In terms of uh, public anti-Muslim discourse in America, so can, can you tell us a little bit about um, what were some of the talking points that kind of emerged uh, at the moment of this attack in, in France and, and afterward, and and how these kind of anti-Muslim activists kind of seized the moment to uh, uh, to kind of get their me- message uh, more solidified.
0: Mm-hmm. It was a, a, re- a real moment in which uh, anti-Muslim activists were, um, were, I think, quite successful in tying the actions of um, particular people who um, were claiming to act in the name of Islam to entire groups of people, right? And that is at the core of, um, of the possibility of public hate, right? generalization and stereotypes and right so we're willing to take a horrific event um, that was perpetrate perpetrated by people who um right who identified as muslim and um i think unfortunately quite successfully um, use that to ask questions about every muslim so, is every Muslim against a particular understanding of course of free speech? Uh, is every Muslim simply waiting um, to enact revenge against a perceived slight? Um, are Muslims capable of um, of living in a context um, in which? right? A a state um, values um, particular things like, again, a given conception of free speech um, over um, understandings of um, religion and religious sensitivity, um, right? So asking questions about whether Muslims can ever live in the West. So drawing on a very long history of those kinds of questions, to bring them into a particular moment and to highlight a really horrible and tragic event to um to support a particular um social and political agenda so you know that and and that moment gave rise to uh discussions around uh so-called no-go zones right about um what happens when muslim communities are left to their own devices um in uh in in western societies right um won't assimilate won't acculturate will remain on their own um and right that kind of mythology around um around immigrant groups that that can't assimilate right it's a kind of trope um, that is deeply connected to, um, to anti-immigrant um, sentiment in the United States, and specifically, right, um, uh, immigrants of color, um, right, to, to really um, ask these, these huge questions that depend on huge generalizations, right? So from that moment, one very tragic event, to uh, to being able to stereotype and generalize um, as uh, again right part of an effort to sow at least enough doubt in the minds of um, of non-Muslim Americans uh, to um, to at least be ambivalent about public expressions of hate and the activities that follow from those expressions.
1: Um, you've talked a little bit about this, um, but um, I know from the data and from, from the the stories you talk about that um, there's, there's kind of these two trends of both uh, kind of everyday public hate crime type activities, uh, but then there's also these more kind of institutional um, issues of legislation, um, you know, like the sh- Sharia type bans that you've talked about, but there, there's other things you mentioned in the book. Can you talk about the kind of relationship between these two? Because it, it almost seems like uh, this this is, I don't know if it's a an effect or an example of how people talk about racism, that, that racism are these kind of overt personal acts as opposed to kind of institutional racism. So can, can you talk about the relationship between these these two types of anti-Muslim activities?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a, a really wonderful question. I see I see them being connected by again, right? This idea of an anti-Muslim social movement, right, and and different kinds of expressions of an anti-Muslim social movement that kind of feeds over time, right? It was really quite incredible in uh, an article about David Ural Shami, who I uh, mentioned earlier in the New York Times article about Ural Shami, he is quoted as saying, "I don't really care if we pass anti sharia legislation. I want people to be talking about Sharia, right So um, so state level legislatures, one venue for sowing doubt about Muslims and about the intentions of Muslims and the capacity of Muslims to be American. So that's one venue. On the other hand, right, the very point of doing that is to uh, is to create the conversations that occur outside of legislatures, right, that then affect the work of school boards that affect the work of police departments and that really seep into public discourse more broadly. So to my mind, they are right both the everyday harassment uh, and violence and st- state level government Activity, they are both expressions of the same social phenomenon, right? Of anti Muslim sentiment and activity. And it's a carefully cultivated phenomenon, purposefully created, right? By um, anti Muslim activists. So to me, right, those two things feed into each other and um and and really feed similar kinds of expressions um in different areas of of public life right whether it's um in legislatures or um the everyday variety uh, of anti-muslim activity in public space or um spreading um, generalizations and stereotypes about Muslims on Facebook, right? And in the data set mapping Islamophobia, there are quite a few instances. And again, these are only those instances which receive media attention because that is the the source of the data, uh, media reports. But there are a lot of media reports of local public officials, police forces, water boards, school boards, of saying really terrible things about Muslims um, in in their um, in social media posts, mostly on Facebook, but not exclusively so. Right, so um, you see a, a very similar kind of activity that kind of reinforces itself over time through these different expressions. Um, and, and I think that um, it would be too simple to say that it's all the result of what politicians are saying. I want to be very careful about that. It's very easy to, um, to reduce anti-Muslim sentiment and rises in anti-Muslim sentiment um, starting around 2015 as right, the fault of a particular figure or a couple of figures. Um, but I talk about in the book right, that it really was the success of a social movement over time. Um, that built into um, conditions in which, again, became really pretty acceptable um, to say um, terrible things about Muslims. And um, what follows from that, right, is a sense that it is acceptable um, to do terrible things to Muslims in public. I mean, I'm just really struck by... um, By the extent to which um, in media reports, right? I mean, people are just doing terrible things in malls, on streets, where there are lots of other people around. So, what makes people feel empowered to do that, right? That's a a really crucial question for me. And that's not just about politicians, right? But that's about um, people in our lives in a really local sense right what are they saying what are they talking about um and that i think creates right an environment of um, of acceptability so i think to your question right the those different expressions are so deeply connected to an underlying social phenomenon Um, that itself is connected to much deeper histories um of um of anti-black racism and anti-immigrant racism
1: this um this idea of this kind of intersection between uh kind of national and then local um really comes out later on in the book when you um you focus on the the rise of muslim public outreach and especially how uh, how muslims uh you know, very often have to do outreach as a form of, of self-protection. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, you know, this is this is one of the parts of the, the book that um you know it comes at a good moment because it's it's the rest of the book is, is difficult to read. Um and some of these kind of more uh, you know quote unquote positive type um occasions are 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 welcomed by the time you get to it in the book. But uh can, can you tell us about some of the strategies that uh, U.S. Muslims use to reach um, non-Muslim publics, um, the types of pressures that instigate uh, Muslim public engagement? Um, often, um, as you mentioned, many Muslims do not necessarily want to do this work. Um, so why, why do they do it uh, despite that? And, and then perhaps um, how can uh, non-Muslim allies uh, contribute to these efforts, which you, you help by laying out very clearly in, in
0: the book. So. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, going back to when um, I first started collecting data for mapping Islamophobia, I remember um, having a conversation with uh, my first research assistant on the project, a student named Chloe Briney. Uh, I was long since graduated from Grinnell. Um, she came to me one day for you know, our, our weekly meeting, and she said, "Yeah, you know, I'm finding I'm finding these reports about anti-Muslim um, activity, but I'm also finding, and the language that she used is really just um, stuck with me. I'm finding all these nice stories, and I don't I don't know what to do with them as we're collecting data. And so we started talking about it, and and that nice story was." Um, an instance of interfaith work, and uh, and it was actually that moment that eventually led me to more systematically collect media reports about instances of public outreach, um, and that in turn pushed me to think about um, how anti-Muslim sentiment and activity affected the nature of um, of Muslim participation and engagement in public life. Um, and, and that to me was was really very important because after September 11th, there was such a precipitous drop in um, in Muslims running for political office in the United States. And uh, so when I started putting these pieces together, it became a really important part of the project to think about um as I said, how anti-Muslim sentiment and activity affects the nature of um, engagement in public life by for Muslims, Um, but then also really trying to understand um, the incredible lengths uh, to which Muslim communities were going to be transparent, to be accessible, to respond to um, criticisms, of Muslim communities, right? That were very much part of kind of rehabilitation of public hate, right? So um, people think that there are no-go zones, we'll open up our mosques. People think that, right, Muslims just hang out with each other. We will create Ask a Muslim events where everyone is welcome and everyone can ask any question that they want, right? And that too, comes in response to um, this kind of trope around the idea of dissimulation or takiyya right, of uh, Muslims hiding their true intentions, right, which, again, right, is, is was part of um, the careful work of anti-Muslim activists who seized on this one um, very small formulation emerging in a particular historical moment with minoritized community Um, within broader Muslim communities, right, of self-protection, right? So um, taking this one small formulation from a particular moment in history and suggesting that every Muslim is hiding something, right, to sow doubt. Um, So I I was very curious in how Muslim communities were responding to elements of anti-Muslim sentiment that really did create fear for people right for people who don't know muslims oh muslims hide their true intentions um, that's scary right and so i um, looking at how muslim communities um, answered that and i talk about it um, in some of my writing right as ministering to other people's fears um, how are Muslim communities ministering to other people's fears? And it was just over time, in, in the in, in the data that I have, just the I mean, literally the tens of thousands of hours that people have put in um, to um, opening themselves up to non-Muslim. Um, members of their communities, local communities. And on the one hand, as um, Chloe had suggested, they're often really lovely stories. On the other hand, I really started asking at a certain point, I wonder if people really want to be doing this. And I tried to imagine my own life as a parent, a partner, someone trying to build a career. And then I tried to imagine what it would be like if there was a kind of expectation of me because of who I was to be giving the kind of time that I saw so many Muslims giving. And um, that's that's really what what led me in part to an approach in the book, um, as you noted toward the end of the book, of really saying, here are some very small suggestions about what non-Muslim Americans can do. Again, very small suggestions. and you know this was it, it, this was my own list of, of possibilities. But what I was really trying to communicate is that, um, is that social change um, happens when lots and lots of people, do small things that's not to say that um that there aren't very significant big things that can spur social change but if we think about for example the history of civil rights in this country it is um to use um an historian named uh, john ditmer's phrase right it's about local people making change and um and so when I, when I imagine that, um, I, I imagine speaking to uh, non-Muslim and, um, and l- largely white readership um, to think about what small things can we do um, in our lives that can begin to change the conditions of public life um, for Muslims in the country. So that's really where I, where I ended up by the end of, end of the book right is really thinking about okay this is all pretty big what i've been writing about although it's rooted in individual people's stories right this is this is as the 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 subtitle of the book suggests right what islamophobia tells us about america right it's a story about america as well and i hope that it is for a lot of readers a very disturbing story about america Um, and um that can be overwhelming i think that kind of big story um and to try and address that potential overwhelm that's really why i tried to focus on small things that people can do in their lives
1: well there's uh certainly a lot more to the book and i I hope people will pick it up and and read a copy um especially those that teach this subject matter, I think it would work really well, uh, especially because of the kind of narrative aspects of the, of the book uh, work really well in a class. So I hope people will explore that option too. Um, before I let you go though, can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the other things you're working on? Uh, if you've been able to work to work on things in the past uh, year or so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, there's something that, that came out of um the book about which i'm i'm pretty excited um there's a an edited volume um that is set to come out from um bloomsbury press um about uh about digital forms of islam and um i i write in a contribution to that volume i write about other models of, um, of humanizing work, right? So if in the book I'm talking about the enormous amount of outreach uh, in which Muslim communities have been engaged, the goal, right, is for people to try and humanize themselves. So it becomes harder in theory for other people um, to say and do nasty things. And, um, and, and I, I really, in the book, began to think about this as a burden of humanization um, and uh, began to connect it to um, other communities of color in the United States who have a similar kind of burden. And they're just amazing expressions of this sentiment, um, especially by, um, by Black writers like um, Kiesa Lehmann, uh, Michael Denzel Smith, um, and I was really talking about what it means to always be thinking and doing with uh, with other audiences in mind, right? Not the people to whom you might really want to be writing or not the audiences with whom you might want to be speaking. Uh, and that just that really got me thinking about, um, well, what are, what are ways of humanization that place less of a burden on people, right? So how can you address the fact that people do have, Fears about Muslims um, in a way that does not prioritize the fact that these people have fears, um, while at the same time addressing them. And I I started to think about um, about a particular podcast, uh, "See Something, Say Something," that really seemed to find this balance between being for muslims but in a way that was also really accessible for non-muslims and i began to look into um what i started calling a stream if you want approach to humanization um where right there's there are conversations there are um, instances of cultural production writing um, filming right that podcasting that are primarily for a particular community, in this case, Muslim communities, um, but that are incredible resources for non Muslim communities to learn about real Muslim lives without putting a burden on those lives. And uh, this is just a, a fascinating um, way to think about um, humanization and addressing people's fears without prioritizing those fears. Um, and so the the work continues in trying to imagine um, how we can address the reality of the situation in the United States without right in that reality being there are a lot of non-Muslims in the United States that um, that are suspicious of Muslims still. So how can we address that reality without putting a burden on Muslim communities? To address that reality, when they had little or no part in creating that reality um, because of anything that they had said or done. So uh, that's that's what I'm working on now. I hope that was a, a cogent explanation, right? Things <laughs> yeah, things in great. process are are often a little little hard to talk about. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, good luck on that, and continuing on all your great work. Uh, I think a lot of these, they're, they're, right? There's a through line you can see. So. Uh, keep, keep doing that good work and uh, congrats on fear in our hearts. It's, it's a great book. So thanks for talking about it.
0: Thank you for the opportunity um, to speak today. I had a, a good time and uh, yeah, I appreciate your, your work on this uh, podcast and and the work of your, your whole team.
1: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Caleb Elfenbein about fear in our hearts. What Islamophobia tells us about America published with NYU press in 2021. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, and we hope you'll join us again.